0: Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, good morning. It's, uh, my calculations are right. Should be right within a day or two. I think it's 52 days till spring, All right? which is fine with me. I am ready. Um, How many of you have ever gone on a diet? Which kind? Well, there's lots of kinds. I mean, you're not, you know, you're trying to lose weight maybe, okay. It was amazing, the first service, I think only about a fourth of the people raised their hands. Which either means they're the skinny service, or... (laughs) I know, I said, or or they uh, you know, weren't paying attention, <laughs> or they aren't being honest. <laughs> I don't know which it is. Um, but anyway, so we go on diets. So let me ask this question. How many of you have ever been on a diet and then stopped the diet? Yeah. I mean, that stopped before you really planned to. That's the idea. So, you know, we get on a diet and, and we, you know, we get all ramped up. We're motivated, right? We are motivated to, to lose some weight or just to eat healthy, whatever our thing is, and we, we're gonna do it. And, and the first day, we do it great. And the second, and, and depending on how you know, it goes for you, it might go for quite some time or it might not be very long. But what happens at some point, that, that motivation level starts to do what? It kind of, it wanes and goes down, right? And you're still doing it, but the motivation level has gone down. And, and what happens is you're sitting here, you know, you're eating dinner, and, and you look at what you're eating, what's on your plate, and you look around at What everybody else is eating. Hmm. And you set your sights on that, and the motivation there goes what? Even farther, and then dinner's over, and everybody else starts eating ice cream. Oh, with chocolate on it, oh, peanut butter. Okay, let's don't go there. But the point is, is it isn't long, If you you lose sight of the mission. Your mission at that point is to what? I got to eat healthier, lose some weight, you know. And, and so when the motivation wanes, you begin to lose sight of the mission. That makes sense? Okay. Well, the same thing is true in our lives with the really big things that matter most. with The things that Christ has for us to do and to be focused on. And, and we can be very motivated about those things, but if we aren't careful, that motivation will start to... Go down, dwindle, and then that can lead us to lose sight of the mission. And so what I want to talk to you about today is is resetting. Resetting so that you have motivation for the mission. Keeping yourself motivated for the mission. We started this uh, series two weeks ago talking about a hard reset where where we acknowledge that that very moment we are saved, that we become slaves of Jesus. And and that even though on the face of it, we might say, wow, that doesn't sound good. The reality is that we all serve somebody or something. We, we, We do. And you could serve nobody better than Jesus. He is the absolute best master. And serving him builds you up, doesn't tear you down. But we are slaves. We need to understand that we should be doing what he says. That should be our pattern of life. And then last week we talked about that we need confidence to do the things that need to be done. Without confidence, we we don't step out and do things. So we need confidence, but we saw in the Christian life that confidence in the Lord is dependent on our surrender to the Lord. When we surrender to the Lord, then we get His confidence, the confidence that we need to do. So the surrender is crucial. Or you won't have the confidence you need. And today, like I said, we want to talk about this reset. And by the way, when we're talking about resetting, we're saying, you know, coming to a clarity about something and making a conscious decision about it. And then working to flesh those things out, to live those things out. That's how we reset, okay? And so we want to talk about today resetting uh, the motivation for the mission that the Lord has given us. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, which is what we have been uh, looking in last couple weeks in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Did I say Philippians? I thought I made up a word like Philippians or something. The Apostle Paul here is talking to the Philippians. They are a good church. They're a pretty solid church. Um, They have a a good reputation. Uh, But they aren't a perfect church and there are things that are showing up as as we will see. He just got through finished talking about the fact that, hey, I may die for serving the Lord here. And you know what? The same thing could happen to you. Persecution will come. It's going to come, and we don't know how it ends. And it could end badly, although Paul says it's not bad, is it? Because if we die, what happens? Go to be with the Lord. But he says, even, so this is a hard place to be in, he says, all right? And then he turns to the Philippians and begins to talk to them about them and their situation in their church. So let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. By the way, page 1349 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. He says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So let's walk through this. These are sort of rhetorical questions making a point, all right? This idea of consolation. So here's been this bad stuff, hard stuff, persecution. You might die. Well, is there any consolation in Christ? And the consolation is there anything that that offsets that? And I question: Is there anything that offsets that? Suffering for Christ? Is there any consolation? Yeah, God is going to work. He's going to do things. So absolutely, there is. Is there if any comfort of love? Man, does the love of Christ comfort you? I am so encouraged by the love of Christ. Uh, Obviously, sometimes more than others when I'm more alert to it, more aware of it. But the reality is this, that when, if, if you have one of those times and you're looking around and you're thinking, nobody really loves me the way I would like to be loved. But you know what? The one who knows me best loves me the most, right? He knows me better than anybody else. And he values me so highly. He values me enough to send his son to die for me. Yes, the comfort of love. And we can't even experience that amongst each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, yes. Any consolation in Christ? Yes. If any comfort of love? Yes. If any fellowship of the Spirit. And and the idea is that when the Holy Spirit, when when we receive Christ as Savior, that moment the Holy Spirit uh, comes to indwell us and he lives within us. So, we have open fellowship with the Lord now. But it, this fellowship in the Spirit is not just with the Lord because you have received Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have fellowship with the Lord and we have fellowship with each other. John says that in his first letter that this fellowship in the Spirit is not just about the Lord, it's about each other. We have these relationships that, that are amazing that the world does not have. The world can have great friendships, of course, people, but they cannot experience the fellowship of the holy spirit with each other and we do we are in this together and then he says if any affection and mercy and of course those are abundant in christ too and ought to be abundant in our relationship with each other so just on the face of it ask real quick how important is your church family then your church family is where you're going to experience this consolation in christ that wow yeah even though things are hard here man it's good here Uh, Your your church family is where you're going to experience this love of Christ the most. Uh, Your church family is where you're going to have this fellowship relationship. It's where you're going to show affection to one another. It's where you're going to show each other mercy and understanding when someone's struggling. You know, this wonderful, amazing church relationship that God intends for us to have. And anybody besides me want that? I want that. All right. So he continues, he says, obviously all the answers to these questions are yes. He says, okay, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. All right, let's just stop there for a moment. When Paul writes these words, he wasn't thinking, oh, I think I'll write some words that they can put in print and put in a Bible someday. He was writing to real people in real life situations. So why do you suppose he's saying, hey, fulfill my joy by being like-minded? You need need to be like-minded. Let me remind you, have the same love for each other. Listen, you need to be of one accord. Why do you suppose he's saying that? You think maybe they were struggling with that? Yeah, they were struggling with that. We go to chapter 4, we won't turn there, but he says, I I implore uh, Iodius and I implore Syntyche. These were two godly mature women in the church. He says, I implore you that you be like-minded. Because apparently they were struggling to be like-minded about things. And let me tell you, when you have two mature people in the church who are struggling to be like-minded, and struggling, does it ripple out? It doesn't just affect them, does it affect other people? And so Paul is concerned about this church of Philippi, great church, but even though they're a great church, he's concerned because there's this undercurrent of not being like-minded, not being on the same page. And I think the concern is that we need to be on the same page with each other about all the things that matter most. The things we go to the Word and look, wow, this really matters. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. This is how we connect with Christ is how we connect with each other. This is what our mission is. This is, I mean, all of these things is so important. And so if we are not like-minded and that begins to sow some seeds of discord in it, uh, that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And Paul is warning them about that. And he continues. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Okay, so he's saying, in the church, family, for us to be the church family that God wants us to be, we have to be like-minded about the things that matter the most. And then in the other things, he says, don't be selfish, right? Don't be selfish and try to make happen what you want. Don't be conceited, think that you know better than everybody else. Esteem others better than yourself. Now. He's not saying here think that other people are more valuable than you. Okay? We're all equally valuable for God. What he's saying is you need to put others first. Don't we tell our children that when they're little? You need to learn to put others first. And that's what Paul is saying here. If we are going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, and let me say again, the kind of church that we want, the kind of church that we want, we have to be willing to set these things aside. And verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Does does this mean that your interests don't matter? No, I don't think it means that at all. But what he says, it's not just about your interests. It's also about the interests of others. What do they need? What are they experiencing? How do we help them? And and how how can we balance that with what I'm desiring? And what can we do here to be like-minded? To have this same love, being of one accord, of what mind? How do we do this? And so I, I see Paul kind of communicating some things to us. And the first one is this, that we are in this together, aren't we? Are we in this together? We're not, we are individuals that come in, but the idea of church family is that you're not just isolated individuals, you're also the body of Christ, okay? And so we are in this together. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to turn towards somebody someplace and say, we're in this together. Say it to somebody. Okay. Some of you, that might be the first time you talk to each other today. Uh, all right? So, but it gets, it's, it's, it's you communicating more than that to us. Because the reality is that you are more important to me than my opinions, all right? Turn to somebody and tell them, you're more important to me than my opinions. I don't see you guys saying that with quite the same heartfelt. That's a little little rougher, isn't it? Honestly? It goes farther. You see, your well-being is much more important than my comfort. All right, I'm gonna stretch you. Turn to somebody and say, your well-being is much more important than my comfort. Say it with meaning. Can I say it right? <laughs> All right, uh, some of you think now you've done it, you've gone too far, right? But can you see that this is what Paul is communicating to us? That is so important. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to think this way. We have to be this way. Um, And so Paul is going to go on and tell us how we can do that. Because, by the way, that ain't easy. It isn't easy. There are so many things in life that come along. You know, we can start off motivated to to be this way, but then you get up and then something happens, doesn't it? This happens and that happens in life. Next thing you know, you're kind of losing sight of, of this. Uh, So it's not easy. So Paul talks to us about, well, here's what it takes to do that. Verse number five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ is the only way we can succeed at being the kind of church family that God wants us to be with each other. There is no other way Let the mind of Christ. What are we talking about? We're talking about how does Christ think about things, right? Well, We want Christ's perception of things. We don't always perceive things accurately, you know, but he always does. And so we need his perception of things. How does he see things? We need his wisdom about the decisions that need to be made because uh, he, he's obviously he's wiser than we are. He knows. He has perfect wisdom. We need his guidance when we're making decisions. And, and, and so... We need his mind about the decisions that we're making. And we could go on and on with that list. But it is the only way that we're going to be able to be is the kind of church that he's describing up here in these first four verses. There is no other way. And so uh, when we share the mind of Christ, and me say, so the only way, excuse me, the only way we can consistently be like-minded with each other is to be Christ-minded. That is crucial. We will lose our motivation for the mission if we don't. And so when when we have the mind of Christ, this is the necessary solution uh, to Christians needing to be like-minded. It is the necessary solution to understanding what our mission really is and why we're here. It's the necessary solution to having an enduring motivation to keep after it. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. We're talking about on uh, uh, avoiding being sidetracked. If it takes the mind of Christ to not get sidetracked. So, this idea of having the mind of Christ. Let me give you a little more perspective on this. There in verse number five, when he says, let this mind be in you. It isn't just, okay, try to think like the Lord would think about these things. It's definitely that, but it's not just that. Uh, The same Greek word that's translated here, let this mind be in use, is is in Colossians chapter three, where it says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind. Now it's a conscious decision to, I am going to on purpose set my mind on thinking these ways. I am going to focus on the mind of Christ. I'm gonna focus on understanding. It's not just, oh yeah, the mind of Christ. No, it's wait a minute. I don't have the mind of Christ naturally doesn't come naturally to me. it come naturally to you? If you aren't sure, ask someone who knows you, right? It doesn't come naturally to us, and so it requires us focusing on it and, and, and yielding to him in it and, and asking him to grow us in it, but it says focus, focusing in on these things. And so we're paying attention to what Christ believes is most important. The things that he thinks need to be done and the way that they need to be done. We're talking about on purpose thinking, see? On purpose thinking. Boy, it's so easy to just go through life and never give a thought to how you think, isn't it? But as Christians, we aren't really supposed to do that. We're supposed to give thought to how we think and and on purpose thinking. And so this idea, when we get the mind of Christ and and we're focusing on this, we begin to understand what Jesus thinks is most important. and. They say to you that the only, um, that's really the only thing that matters. Make sure that whatever Jesus thinks is important is most important to you. And you're not going to know what that is unless you focus on having the mind of Christ. Okay, we need to do that. And so we want it to be what's motivating us is what Jesus thinks is important. And when I say he thinks, if I say I think something, there's no absoluteness or confidence that if Jesus thinks something, he's right. Okay. All right, so Paul says, have the mind of Christ. You know, well, that's great. What, what exactly is the mind of Christ? Let's work our way through it. He, he describes it. Verse 6, he says, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Okay, let's, let's stop there. Being in the form of God. This word, form... <laughs> Uh, comes from a Greek word, morphe, morph. You know, you get the idea of morph. Something, something morphing from one thing to another. We're thinking about the form or shape of something. This word form does not refer to outward shape. That's not the emphasis, okay? If, in the Greek language, if they wanted to emphasize the outward shape, they might talk about the schema, okay? The outward shape of this. But so when they use this word morphe, they're talking about, yes, the shape, but it's, it's about the actual, the nature of this thing. So if I was talking about the schema or the outward shape of this chair, I would talk about this and size and this size, you know, maybe what it's made out of and the shape. But when I use the, if I use the word morphe in Greek, I'd be talking about, wow, this is a chair to sit on. It's na- that's what it's about. You see what I mean? And so he, the word used here is that, that he's in the form of God. What does that mean? His very nature. He is God. That's his nature. He is God. And it says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What happens when you rob somebody? Well, Wait a minute. It makes it sound like you do that. No. If you rob somebody, though, what are you doing? You're taking something that does not belong to you. And it says when he considered being God, he wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him. It's who he is. Hi. Right. So the first thing we see here about the mind of Christ. So let me back up just a minute. Anybody here feel like that you have any rights as a human being? Right, I mean, you know, a Declaration of Independence indicates, he talks about God-given rights, and yes, we do have rights, I believe there are human rights. Okay, I believe that. Well, if you and I have rights, does God have any rights? And we kind of, well, yeah, think about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He does. Does he have the right to be treated like God? I mean, does he have the right to, say, impose his will? I mean, all these things, right? So the mind of Christ, first thing what Jesus is, is that he had rights, and he had the right to demand his rights. <laughs> okay? And it was right for him to do so. Okay. That's important for us to understand. So let's continue to go on here. Verse number seven. So he's God. He has these rights, and he has the right to demand them. Verse 7, but instead, there's no instead there, but this is what I mean. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Okay, so even though he's God, he does something that on the face of it we wouldn't think was godlike, though it, it is. He made himself of no reputation. So, when we think about people in your life who are, are well-known, could be in your company, could be in your, your nation, think of people who are really well-known, and they have this huge reputation. People know them. Lots of people know them. Lots of people know lots of stuff about them, right? And then you think about somebody else who nobody really knows, right? Nobody knows. They don't know anything about them. They're they're nobody And let me just say, nobody's a nobody with God. But do you understand the point I'm making? The comparison between those two? Well, how much of a reputation does God have? Creator of the universe. Redeemer of all mankind. All of this. And then Jesus sets that whole thing aside. The Son of God sets that whole thing aside and, and is born as the man Jesus. He becomes a nobody in the eyes of the world from being God overall to being a nobody in the eyes of the world. Now, this doesn't mean he isn't God or wasn't God. Don't mean that at all. Another, uh, this word that says made himself of no reputation, the word that's translated there literally means emptied, too empty. It says he emptied himself now, he didn't empty, did not empty himself of being God. Because once God, always God. That makes sense, right? You can't be God if you're not, all, I mean, so yes, once God, always God. He didn't stop being God. But this word to empty is, translated, is understood or used in the Greek language sometimes to communicate a setting aside of one's own prerogatives or setting aside of your rights, not demanding your rights. You empty yourself of that. And that's what Jesus did. The Son of God becomes a man. He's a human being. He lives the, his life as a human being. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% human. And, and as he lived his life here on earth, he did not just use his power as God whenever. He submitted himself to his Father. All through the Gospel of John, he says time and again, I only do what the Father shows me to do. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And if the Father tells me to heal this person... Bang, it's done. Do you see how he set it aside, though? But he set aside more than that. As God, he's totally separate from sin, not touched by sin. He set that right aside and did what? Came into our world And, and surrounded himself with our dirt. And more than that, he did what? He took our dirt on him. 100% 100% God, 100% human. And, and if you can envision this, this idea of emptying himself, I, I, I kind of, it's not a perfect analogy, but uh, I like to watch police shows and stuff, you know. And, and one of the classic police show scenes is all of a sudden, here's the bad guy, and he grabs his gun, he's holding his gun up, right? And there's a half a dozen policemen around him, all yelling at him with their guns, pointing at him, right? And this guy, for whatever reason, is half out of his mind, and they don't want to kill him. And, and the hero... The hero of the story, the police story, goes, he says, okay, wait, 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 wait. don't shoot, don't shoot. And he says, okay, look, 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 I'm going to put this down. I'm going to set this down. And he sets the gun down and he he slowly walks over and talks and finally does what? Takes the guy's gun and they save his life. The police officer does what? Empties himself of his rights and his authority and puts himself at risk for this person here. And Jesus was never at risk. But you see what I'm saying? This, is, this is, It's emptying himself to reach us. And so in so doing he exposes himself to everything down here. So the mind of Christ. He had rights including the right to demand his rights. The second thing we see here is he yielded his rights. For the sake of others. He yielded his rights. He didn't demand them. Alright so let's continue reading here. Verse number eight. It says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. All right, so he's become a man. By all appearances, just look at him, he's just a man, but he's more than a man. And what's he do? He humbles himself before God and before us. You know, he becomes this slave, as we, we looked at uh, last uh, two weeks ago. He becomes a slave to the Father and a slave to us, serving us. Remember, he said, I didn't come to serve others, but I can I Excuse me, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. How? By giving my life a ransom for many. So see, he came and became that slave in service. And he became obedient to the point of death. And not just death even the death of the cross. Well, what's so significant about that? Well, what did the cross mean? In the Old Testament, if somebody was a criminal and they they committed an offense worthy of death and they were hanged on a tree, that's how they described it, and we're not quite sure what that actually entailed, but it's, you know, Jesus described as hanging on a tree, on the cross. He said anyone hanged on a tree is accursed of God being judged by God wow so what happened on the cross was Jesus judged by the father yeah for my sins for your sins it's overwhelming to me that he went that far to the death of the cross. I can't imagine that somehow the whole fabric of heaven is is ripped and torn as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that for me and for you, for the world. And so as we talk about the mind of Christ, you know, had the rights, including the right to demand his rights, he yielded his rights for the sake of others. And then the third thing that Paul shows us here is he willingly sacrificed everything. To reach the lost, I don't know what else he could have given. Right. So the mind of Christ. First four verses. He says, "We got a problem here. You aren't on the same page." You, you, you aren't experiencing this loving relationship. The, the church family is, is, is kind of feeling, "Us, ah, not really where we like it to be. We want it to be different. And Paul says, yeah, it needs to be different. It's crucial that it's different. Here's your solution, the only solution. You need to have the mind of Christ. And I'll solve it because all of a sudden we're, we're living more with a sacrificial mindset, right? It's not about me and what I'm wanting for me anymore. It's about you and and us and and what does God want here. And, And I would say to you that the church that God envisions for us is worth fighting for. I don't mean fighting each other. I mean making the efforts, putting ourselves maybe out of our comfort zones. Learning to think differently, make different decisions, and and, but it's worth making the effort for to have this church that would be just so amazing that that, you know you just feel like man we are just so tight-knit as family and we're experiencing this and guess what? That is not easy. Things happen, things change, and all of a sudden it just doesn't feel that way anymore. You know, and, and who likes that? I don't like that. I don't think any of you do. But the idea is we have to say that it, that is available to us. It's going to take some effort. It's going to take work. But the only thing that's going to keep us going, keep us motivated, see, this, being that this kind of church is part of the Lord's mission for us. We often think mission and think out there. That's true. But part of his mission for us is to be this church family, this body of Christ that is what he wants us to be and which I think we have deep longings for. But so as we get the mind of Christ and, and have this sacrificial thinking and, and a willingness to, to give you know, up to be what God wants us to be, that, that will reset your motivation for the mission. Nothing else will, because nothing else will be enough. Things will get too hard. But the mind of Christ, that will keep you going. And we can become this church that God wants us to be and that we so desperately want to be. Now, did you ever buy a DVD or watch a DVD that says bonus material included? Well, today you've got bonus sermon material included. Okay? You might have thought, hey, we're getting out early. No. (laughs) No. So the question I ask is, is, why is this so important? I mean, yeah, I would like it, you would like it, but what's, you know if we don't have it, what's the big deal? Why is it so important that we be this church, this amazing church that looks like Jesus? Why, why would we want to be that? Well, let me tell you what it's not for. It's not so that we can be happy, though we will be happy. But that's not what it's about. It's not so that we can say, oh, we got this really cool, amazing church and we can invite people, show people. Yep, that's not what it's about, although we will be able to do that. Jesus told us why this is so important on his last night before he died. And he made two statements. And the first one he made as they were sitting around in the upper room, they'd eaten the Passover, and they're talking about uh, he's talking to them about you know what's happening where things are going and he says to them a new commandment i give you that you love one another as i have loved you this is mind of christ love isn't it christ like love you love each other the way i have loved you and then the next verse he says this by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this love, you know, having the same love as, he talk, as Paul talks about in Philippians, having this same love is the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here. And, and is this love just so we can feel good? Does it make us feel good? Yeah. Is it just so we can feel good? No. He says... This is how the world will be able to look at you and say, those people are followers of Jesus. Look how they love each other. Now, that, doesn't, that statement doesn't mean that they're going to conclude that Christianity is true. But they're going to conclude that we are Christians. We're the real deal because of our love for each other. So what I want you to see right off, we're talking about the well-being of the church and the mind of Christ, but that what God is doing this for is not just for us, is it? He wants us to have this church, this kind of love, not just for us, but for the world to be able to identify A couple hours later, he's in the garden praying, and he prays for all the believers who are going to come. He prays for us. And he prays to his Father, and John 17 says, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You catch it? Yes, we need to have a oneness, this one-mindedness, this one accord, one in the Lord. And and that means, it doesn't mean we never disagree about anything. We do, but but the idea is when you and I disagree, you're more important to me than how I'm feeling about this issue. And and vice versa. And so we we work together on this and, and we hang in there and we fight for this amazing thing that God has for us. And what happens is the world takes note, and the whole world, one person here, one person there, the world takes note that, wow. And I'm going to talk as if I'm one of them right now, okay? Wow. You know, I don't see that anywhere else in life the way these people do with each other. I don't see it anywhere else. There must be something to this. You see that? Maybe Jesus really did come from God. But so we see right here that this amazing church family that we want to be and we want to feel and experience and love, that God gives that to us. But it's not just for us, he gives that to us so that we can reach others. And so let me say say it this way to you, that we need to be effective as the church in here so that we can be effective as the church out there, right? In other words, if, if 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 we aren't the kind of church that God wants us to be here, we won't be effective out there. After 42 years of ministry, uh, being a Christian, 43 plus years, um, I've noticed something. We're all recovering sinners, right? That's why we have these problems along the way. And um, what I've noticed is that we really like church when church is good, right? I like it, I love it. We love it, but the problem is, is we love that a whole lot more than we love the people out there who are lost and going to hell. And far too often we find ourselves content to enjoy and just let them go. Understand this. We're talking about in here, out there, that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. And so the idea is if we're always trying to do outreach, we're trying to do outreach, where we're trying to, and we're trying to you know, structure for outreach and program for outreach or outreach outreach. And in the process, we lose the family that God intends for us to have, right? Well, guess what's going to happen? Are we going to be effective in outreach? No. Same is true the other direction. If we think we're going to have this church family and enjoy it and, and love it, but we don't, if, if, if that does not include outreach, then what are we? Besides a nice Christian club. And I think we find ourselves lining up with Revelation chapter three, the church at Laodicea, and God says, man, you're lukewarm. Blah. Can't afford to be that either, can we? And so, um, as I prayed about this again this morning, the, the sermon just spent a time with the Lord I just felt so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and with no necessary clear focus just that that he's at work and he has something he wants to do in our midst and um, my heart's desire is that we would be both that we would be a church that is just an amazing church family that people are so excited to be a part and that actually represents Jesus you know people say wow look at them and points them to the Lord, but at the same time, I desperately want to see us focusing on outreach at the same time. And guess what? We can't do both and get along with each other without the mind of Christ. Does that make sense? So I invite you to join me, put your your heart before God and say, oh God, we want this. What's it gonna take? What do we need to do? Let's do it. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word and that you speak to us so forthrightly. Father, we wanna honor you as a church, a church family. We want to to experience your presence in us, your love, all the things we read about today, we want those things. We want to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We want that, Father. We want the warmness of family, the support of a church family. We want all those things, alive and vibrant, that you are here and present and and can be known here. Oh, Father, please don't let us fall into the trap of thinking that we can somehow do that, by pulling back from reaching out. Help us to see that that is a perversion of what you intend for us to have. Give us no peace about it, Father, until we yield ourselves to you in it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and I'm I'm sure this will be an ongoing topic of conversation for us going forward. Thank you.